Well, good morning. Take your Bibles this morning and turn to James chapter 5. James chapter 5. And as you're finding that, I want to uh, just say a few words about... Anybody make it to our car show yesterday? Yeah. All right, a lot of you did. And, uh, man, we just had a great time. And I just want to say a special thank you uh, to a team of guys who helped uh, make that happen. Uh, Scott Dobbs. I'm not sure if Scott's in here. Scott, Scott's over here. Uh, James Hudgens, Buddy Knight, uh, Brian Pickett. Uh, that was the team that helped um, organize and put on that car show and all the other volunteers that helped. Thank you all so much. It was a great day. Yeah, let's let them know. And uh, we're going to look forward to uh, hopefully that being an annual event. So great opportunity to just engage with our community. And again, thank you all for all your help. Uh, James chapter 5 is where we will be. Uh, we started kind of landing the plane uh, last week. Uh, in our study through James, and this week we are touching down through a book that has been a powerful book, a practical book, an encouraging book, a pruning book, a sanctifying book. Uh, it's this small letter here at the end of our New Testament that has hopefully been a blessing to your life. It's blessed my life as I have walked through it and studied it over the last three months. It's taken us three months to get through the book of James, and, and here we are. And so uh, that's what we're doing this morning. I want to uh, let you know next week is Palm Sunday, and uh, we have a special guest preacher. I'll still be here, but we have a guest speaker who usually comes a couple Sundays after Easter, but he's going to come early this year, uh, Brody Holloway, our friend from Snowbird Wilderness Outfitters. So he'll be preaching for us next week on uh, Palm Sunday. We'll be observing the Lord's Supper, so it's going to be a great day. And then two weeks from today, can you believe it, is Easter. All right, so uh, we need your help in just inviting people to our Easter services. If they don't have a church home, uh, you can find some invite cards on your way out this morning, and that would be a great help, and that'll bless your life if you do that. Uh, have some conversations with folks and invite them this week. But back to this morning, let's walk through uh, these eight verses here together at the end of James. James, a small book here written by the younger brother, half-brother of Christ, and he's shown us throughout this book that when the gospel takes root in your life... And in the life of an authentic disciple, it produces not perfect, but progressive fruit. All right, this book is packed with teaching on what an authentic disciple looks like when they walk through trials, how you treat people, how you talk to people, uh, how you walk in God's wisdom and not the wisdom of this world, how you live ready for the second coming of Christ. Uh, but before he says goodbye, James has, and it doesn't surprise us, two more uh, you know, steps of action, I guess you could say, say that we need to take as authentic disciples. Two things that should describe the life of a disciple. And these are, these are the two things this morning. Authentic disciples pray and authentic disciples pursue. Authentic disciples pray, authentic disciples pursue. Stand with your Bibles open as we read God's holy word. I'll begin in verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone among you cheerful? Let him praise. Sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the one, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain for three, three years and six months. Uh, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth 
and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. And James here, in a similar way that he opens up, doesn't open up with a lot of pleasantries or a lot of words. He jumps right into the action. He leaves us with two very important pieces of action for our life as disciples. And then he just ends. But this is rich truth that our lives need this morning. Now have a seat as I pray for God to help us to learn together. God, I pray that you would teach us through your word this morning. God, we thank you for your word that's living, that's active. Uh, it is a sanctifying word. And so I pray we'd lean in with teachable hearts, that you would sanctify us by your word. Your word is truth. And so Lord, I pray, Lord, as we, in the next few moments, dive into this last section of James, who has given us a very clear portrait of what it looks like to be a disciple. Lord, I pray that you would help us. Your Holy Spirit would help us to learn, help our minds to understand what we can't understand on our own, our hearts to believe what we can't believe on our own, and to help us to apply these truths to our lives in a way we can't without the help of your Holy Spirit. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. First point this morning, we'll jump right into this. And let me just go ahead and give you a warning, all right, so you can mentally prepare. I'm going to spend a lot of time on this first point and a little bit of time on the second point, all right? So just keep that in mind, all right? Point number one this morning, authentic disciples are people of fervent prayer. Authentic disciples are people of fervent prayer. Now, the outline right here is pretty easy to see. We see some instruction in verses 13 through 16. And then we see an example of fervent prayer in verses 17 and 18. But there's definitely some things that we need to mine out and we need to unpack right here. Now, James starts his letter in uh, the first chapter in verse 5 on the subject of prayer. Chapter 1, verse 5, he says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach. All right, here he's ending, kind of circling back here at the end to what he hit at, on at the very beginning, focusing on prayer. Let me tell you, James is a guy, he is a pastor who practices what he preaches. He, uh, in fact, in the first century church, James had a nickname that people called him in the church, and it, it's a very weird nickname. Let me just give you a heads up. All right, it almost sounds insulting, but they called him Old Camel Knees which sounds like fighting words until you really understand what he's saying. That the physical appearance of his knees were so naughty and gnarly looking from, and they resembled that of a camel. That's the reason they called him that. And it was from the hours upon hours, days after days, years after years that he spent on his knees in prayer. He's a man of prayer and he's a pastor of people. And so it makes sense for us to lean in and to listen what he has to tell us this morning. And in verse 13, he says this, is anybody among you suffering? Let him pray. He spent the previous section drawing us in. If you were here last week, that text, if you're suffering, it draws you in. It, um, it, he does a really good job at helping us understand some very important truths about suffering. He encourages us and exhorts us to be patient in suffering. And now it's as if he's saying after going through what can be a very emotional text on suffering, he leans in and says, is that you? Are you someone this morning that's in a season of suffering? Now, that's a question we don't usually volunteer an answer to, an honest answer to, right? You've been on the campus this morning, and you've probably already been asked several times, hey, how's it going, right? Hey, how are you doing? Are you, are you doing good? Now, most of the time, if we, even if we've had a horrible week, we lie. We're not doing good. Yeah, you're doing good. Blessed to be here. Amen, right? Like when you hear a, a question asked from the stage that we often ask, say, how are y'all doing this morning, Right? 
Nobody's truly honest in that moment, right? If they were, we might not ask that question anymore, right? How y'all doing this morning? Suffering greatly, right? (laughs) Terrible, right? It would be a little awkward, maybe. But it's a question that the Bible wants our hearts to give an honest answer to. And James says, are you suffering? And if you answer yes to that, James asks this, have you prayed about it? Taking that to the Lord faithfully, passionately, to Him in prayer. He's already asked us questions about our suffering kind of from a negative angle. He says, hey, when you, when you suffer, are you somebody who complains about it? So don't do that. When you suffer, have you lashed out to other people about it in anger who are close to you? Don't do that. Have you slandered others with your words because of that? Don't do that. Throughout his book, he has showed us the wrong sinful ways that we use our words that we should not in ways that we should not. And it's if right here he's showing us, hey, I've showed you all the wrong ways to use your Let me give you a right way to use your word. Let me give you some useful, helpful, healing, spiritually beneficial ways to use your words when you suffer. Pray. Pray. Now, the question is, is some of you are in a season of suffering, is when you, I mean, when the heat's turned up, when you are suffering, the question that you often, you know, is in your mind is, how do I pray when I don't know what to pray? How do I pray when I feel like I'm getting to the end of my rope? I want you to know that God's word never leaves you hanging. That there's always places to go to rest your heart in God's word. And I want to encourage you this morning, if you are in a season of suffering, there's a lot of places I could point you to in God's word. But let me tell you how much of a gift to the church the Psalms are. A third of the Psalms are Psalms of lament. You know what that, that, that means? It means these are written by real people who are walking through real trials, dealing with disappointment, anxiety, confusion, not understanding why God would let things unfold the way that he's allowing things to unfold. We have their real people. We have their prayers documented in God's word as they are struggling in real time through seasons of suffering in similar ways that you're suffering. And that's encouraging. Because it reminds us of a couple things. It reminds us, one, that when we suffer, when we see real people in God's word, these prayers that are canonized, that are right here to help us, it reminds us that when we suffer, that it doesn't mean it's always tied to something wrong that we've done. It doesn't mean that we're somehow strange. In fact, when we see that all these, the psalmists, all these godly people suffered, it actually shows us maybe that we're not weird, that we're more normal than we realize as a Christian. See, there's a lie that has invaded the church, the American church especially, that when you come to Christ, hey, welcome to a cozy, comfortable, convenient life. From here on out, life's going to be nothing but merry and bright. Everything's right. Smooth sailing on a sea of nothing but health, wealth, and prosperity. Two words for that. You ready? Garbage theology. You can write that down. This is the only note you take today. I'll be happy. Garbage theology. You know what Jesus said to his disciples, most of which who were murdered because of their faith in Jesus Christ? He told them in John 16, 33, in this world, you will not, you may not, you might, you will have trouble. Peter said in first Peter four, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you. Another psalmist, Psalm 34, 19 says, many are the afflictions of the righteous. The Bible shows us suffering is actually a normative part of discipleship. It doesn't mean you're strange. It doesn't mean you're weird. It actually can mean you're normal as a disciple. And when you suffer, but I didn't want to encourage you this. When you suffer, run to the Psalms. Camp out in the Psalms, specifically in those Psalms of lament. Because those, those, the psalmists can, can show you how to pray when you don't know what to pray. Let them inform you 
on what to say. And it can also remind you, as does James, that when we pray and we're in suffering, that we're to pray in those seasons for God to give our hearts the joy and peace only He can give as we navigate them. Isn't that what James says? That's what you'll find in the Psalms. Seeking to return to this place of satisfaction in God, of contentment in God, as things in this life are stripped away from us, driven to sufficiency of who He is. And you see that in James. What does he say? Count it a joy. James gives us something that we can pray for in our trial, to pray for joy. Now, what that is not saying is that's not saying count the trial as joy. Like, enjoy the trials. Like, lift your hands like you just got on a roller coaster. Thank you for the, just force a smile. Thank you for the trials in my life. God, give me more. Now, he's encouraging us to count, to consider it all joy what God's doing in the trial. Listen carefully. The joy comes from knowing that God's up to something big in the trial. The joy comes from knowing that God's at work, that even when it feels messy, even when it feels like things are falling apart, that he's always in perfect control, that there's always a purpose, even in the pain, that he's working out his plans, keeping his promises. No matter what trial you go through, it doesn't negate that truth. Joy comes from knowing that joy comes from knowing and believing that the trial's not going to last forever. That one day Jesus returns and the suffering that you've experienced and the suffering we experience in this life, we will know no more. And believing those truths, what James shows us and the rest of the Bible shows us is the key ingredient to you having joy in the trial, to your heart believing that. But here's the deal. You will not believe those truths in your heart on your own. We get that through prayer. That's why he says, are you suffering? Pray. He says, is anyone cheerful? So he's going to hit all seasons, the gamut of life, all the, the gamut of life right here. He's going to ask you, hey, are you cheerful this morning? You're just like, I, I don't know, uh, you know, of anything that I'm suffering greatly about. I can't think of a trial. Maybe you're in a season of cheer. By the way, let that encourage your heart if you are walking through a season of suffering right now. Because you need to know that if you're in that season of suffering, that there's also seasons of cheer in this life. And that you keep enduring, you keep persevering. In heaven, you will experience an existence of cheer and bliss and perfection in the presence of your Savior. But in this life, God's grace breaks through in seasons and we experience seasons of cheer. And when that happens, so let that encourage you if you're suffering, but also remember that if you are in a season of cheer, he says, sing praise. Sing praise. See, some of you are walking through a season of cheer right now. How do you walk through that season of cheer? Are you selfish about it? Or do you use it as an opportunity to praise God for the good gifts that he gives you? See, the truth of the matter is when you came in this morning, there are some people walking through a season of suffering who needed some people walking through a season of cheer to sing some gospel songs with passion this morning over them. Keep that in mind when you walk into this place on Sunday morning. We're called to sing gospel songs to the glory of God with passionate hearts, grateful hearts, declaring the goodness of an ever faithful God. That's what we're called to do every, that's why we show up here and sing on Sunday mornings together, encouraging each other through it. It's a commandment right here, right? This is one of the most repeated commandments in all of scripture. Sing praises to God. All right. I know if nobody else will give me an amen on that, the praise team will this morning. You say, well, what if I don't like this song? Sing. Here's the rule of thumb that I use, all right? If, is it theologically correct? Right? Is it focused on Jesus? 
Even if it's not my cup of tea, I sing. Right? I was at a youth event recently um, where I was speaking. And I was standing in the back and a song began to play. I was like, huh, that's different. I like, man, I'm 40 this year. I guess I'm getting old. But you know what I did? I stopped and said, this isn't my cup of tea. I see other people enjoying it. It's focused on Jesus. I can kind of understand what they're saying. It's gospel-centered. And you know what I did? I sang. Which, you know, you need to understand this when you come in, laying your preferences aside and, and unifying with the body of believers that are here who all have different preferences when it comes to styles of music and opening your mouth and singing so long as it's a gospel-centered song, theologically correct, exalting Christ. That's actually really good practice for heaven. Because one day we're going to be all standing around one throne singing to one Savior. And I haven't found any evidence in Scripture that I'm going to have any control over the set list. So when you think about all the variety of the different nations, hey, there's going to be a variety of styles. And I don't think you're going to be able to get away with, hey, getting away to the concession stand and taking a break when it's not your cup of tea. So we learn to sing. Especially when in seasons of cheer, no good excuse, not lifting up a song of praise, a song of prayer to your God. Who wants to hear from you this morning? God desires a relationship with you. He knows that's where you are going to be conformed to the image of Christ. God wants to hear from you this morning. Listen, we're not to outsource our prayer life. He wants to hear from you. We're not to outsource our, our praise. He wants to hear from you. You say, well, I'm bad at singing, not to God. You say, well, I'm not good at praying. Hey, we could have some people up here who could just put the string together some impressive prayers. I mean, some big theological words that make everybody go, wow. But you know who God wants to hear from? He wants to hear from you. He wants to help you and strengthen you in times of trouble and suffering. He wants to keep you humble and close to Him in times of cheer. But it only happens powerfully through a personal, fervent prayer life. So, James focuses on our responsibility to pray in our own life. And then he shifts to our responsibility to pray for others and to call on others to pray for us in seasons. And he focuses on a specific time right here when this needs to happen. Look at verse 14. He says, if anyone is sick... If anyone among you is sick, let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. My goodness, we do not have time to break down all the different opinions with scholars and commentaries on that one verse right there. So we're not going to do that. I'm not going to give you the 15 things that I think this is not saying. I'm just going to focus on what I believe through my study this week, what I believe God's Word is telling us right here. All right, first we need to establish what kind of sickness this is referring to. All right, the word you see printed as sick right there in your English translation for most of us. The original word there literally means fatigued. It means without strength. So this is the picture, James is painting the picture of someone who's bedridden. All right, this is, in other words, this isn't talking about somebody with a common cold in this scenario right here. This is the same word that John uses to describe uh, Lazarus laid out in the tomb. This is the same word that's described to uh, the, describe the guy's condition in John 5, who's laid out beside the pool of Bethesda. This is a very sick person that James is describing. Even the phrase to pray over them, right? To 
pray over them, and then the Lord will lift them up, seems to indicate to us this is a person who is in trouble. This is a person who's laid out and very, very ill. And if that's where, if you are ever in a season like that, what he's saying is you're to request the elders of the church to come and to pray over you. Now, who, who are the elders? Who, who is he talking about right there? This is referring to those in the office of giving spiritual oversight within the local church. The same exact word used throughout the New Testament for pastors, shepherds, overseers, elders. It's all the same word in the original language. It's a synonymous term. We, we interchange those English words, understanding that the original word was the same. You know what that doesn't mean? That doesn't mean this. That doesn't mean that when a group of people, godly people, come together and lift up prayers of faith and they lay their hands who maybe are not serving in the office of, within a local church, that when those godly people surround someone and they, and they lay their hands on someone and they pray for someone, that doesn't mean your prayers in that scenario right there are any less effective than the scenario that James is painting right here. But these are the specific instructions that James gives us in this Specific instance. When a person is very ill, again, they can call on the elders to come pray for them. What this does not mean, he is not saying, and make a note of this, that this doesn't mean don't go to the doctor. Right? First Timothy 5.23, when Timothy was sick, you know what Paul didn't do? He didn't just say, hey, just pray about it. Just keep praying about it. He actually told him, drink some wine for medicinal purposes for your stomach. Use your head. We also have instruction here for elders to come and to pray over a sick person who requests them to come and pray and anoint them with oil. Now, what does oil mean right here? It's, it's not medicinal. In those days, there were oils that were used for medicinal purposes. But in a situation like this, in Scripture, uh, it's used in a symbolic way. In other words, there's nothing magical in the extra virgin olive oil that's used to anoint people when you go and pray with them. The application of the oil was actually a sign in the Bible of setting a person aside for a special task. So it's like when Samuel uh, anoints David with oil, he's setting him aside for a special task, uh, that of uh, being the king of Israel. So when we anoint someone with oil, what's happening is the leaders are setting aside in faith that person before God, asking God to give special attention to this person, that he would heal them in a special way in their time of need. So again, let me say, if you're sick and you, would want, you want us to come pray for you, we'll, we'll do that. And we believe God works powerfully in those situations. But also know this, you don't need oil in order to experience healing. You don't need oil and you don't need uh, this setup and this formula in order to experience healing. In fact, this is the only New Testament passage that mentions this. Then in verse 15, it says, And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. Now, there's a big question right here, and I'm going to tell you, I need you to hang with me here, because I'm going to say some things that may make you think for a second, but I think if you really, truly try to understand Scripture and let the Word of God interpret the Word of God and let the Word of God speak to us, that you'll be with me once I get to the end of this. Because a big question surrounds that phrase, the prayer of faith will save someone will bring healing to someone. Okay, so the question is, is that implying that God chooses to heal or not heal someone based on how faith-filled their prayers are? To where if you pray a prayer strong enough, and the problem when somebody's not healed, maybe somebody would say, is you just don't have enough faith. And if you have big enough faith and you pray a big enough prayer of faith for, for long enough, then God will finally hear that prayer of faith and they'll be healed. 
Is that what it means when it says that the prayer of faith will save? Well, we, again, we want to read our Bible with the rest of the Bible. We want Scripture to interpret Scripture. And if you stand in that position, what I would say is you've got to deal with an issue with Paul. Because in 2 Corinthians, Paul has a thorn in his flesh. And we're pretty certain that that's an illness. Probably an eye illness that he had. That was serious. And we have documented there uh, in 2 Corinthians that he prayed three times. Begged God to remove that. Begged God to heal him. And God did not. Are you going to say that the Apostle Paul lacked faith? I mean, 13 of the books that are canonized in the New Testament you're looking at right now are written by Paul. We see nothing that indicated that he was a man in those situations that lacked faith. But God doesn't heal him. And instead, God says, instead of me healing you, he says in that, in that text, he says, my grace is going to be sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And what Paul is showing us, this is very important, is that sometimes when you lift a prayer of faith and don't get a physical miracle, what you get, in, you get a different kind of miracle. And that God, instead of removing that illness, instead of God removing that sickness, God chooses in that season to draw you close to him in that trial and empowers you miraculously to endure it and to persevere through it. Because in the grand scheme of things, in his infinite wisdom, he's able to see what you can't see. He's able to see that that trial, that that thorn in your flesh is something that he's going to use to bring about Christ-like character in your life that would not happen if you were not going through the sandpaper of sanctification through that suffering and through that trial. And he's going to develop you in your character that you'll be able to keep with you forever. And the miracle in that moment is the grace that he gives you to carry through it. So sometimes we lift prayers, lift up prayers full of faith and get a different kind of miracle. Sometimes it isn't God's will to heal us on this earth at all. Tough question. Is it always God's will to heal? I would say look at Christ. Matthew 26, if, as long as it's a prayer of faith, is God's will always for you to be healed? Is, is it always His will for Him to remove the suffering? Look at Jesus. Matthew 26, 39, there He is in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's so, he, he's so full. Feeling the burden of that moment of knowing what's about to come. Sweating drops of blood, praying passionately in Matthew 26, 39. My father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Is anybody praying with more of a heart full of faith than Christ, the son of God himself? He knew what was ahead. His his prayer was a prayer of faith. He's saying this, father, let me go a different direction. But then he says, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And yet, how does God respond to that prayer that Jesus Christ prays and lifts up to the Heavenly Father. What was God's will for his life? Suffering and a brutal death on the cross. And we see Jesus' humanity and his divinity both happening there. It's mysterious as to how both of those things are true, but they are. But you see him on one hand desiring not to suffer. Desiring not to absorb in himself the judgment of God in our place. And yet at the same time, simultaneously yielding to the Father's will. That in his life overrode his own desires in this moment right here. Authentic disciples pray the same way. God, it's not, it's not about my will being done in heaven. 
It's about your will being done right here on earth through my life. And I don't know what your will is, so I'm going to pray big, bold prayers of faith. I'm going to ask you to move in ways that only you can move. I'm going to trust that my prayers somehow mysteriously in the sovereignty of your work in this world. And yet with my human responsibility to obey you and to lift prayers like this, that you somehow can affect the outcome of situations. I'm going to lift these prayers up to you and yet trust and yield to your will for my life. Sometimes God responds with a different kind of miracle, the grace that we need to be carried through the trial. Sometimes God chooses to heal us by calling us home to a place where we are fully healed. Hey, by the way, that's where we all end up. 125 years from now, everybody in this room will be completely healed. Emotionally, physically, spiritually, our souls groan for that, long for that. Our bodies are under the curse, are breaking down, but one day we will be healed. But here's what healing is along the way. As we lift up prayers of faith, the kind of prayers that James is talking about right here. Sometimes it's through medicine. Sometimes it's through doctors. Sometimes it's through inexplicable ways that will make a doctor stand there and feel puzzled. God gives us foretastes of that coming kingdom. That's what healing is. He removes the cancer. He removes a mass. He removes the disease. He supernaturally restores health. And when that happens, and when you experience a miracle, and maybe you're praying for a miracle right now, and if you experience healing, and God removes that from your life, know what's happening right there. For one, God's doing the healing. It says the Lord is the one who heals right there. But we also recognize when you're, you know what you're, you know what happens when you get healed? You're forestalling. What God's doing is forestalling the inevitable condition of your future self, which is going to be death and then eternity with Jesus. So what's happening when you get healed is God saying, I'm not done with you yet. So when you get healed, it's an opportunity for you to reevaluate your life, to use the rest of the time that God has you here for his glory. It's an opportunity for God to be glorified. Do you know that that's the purpose of healing? The purpose of healing and and sickness being removed is so that God will be glorified and so that people on this earth will see the supernatural breaking through the natural, seeing a physical sickness being removed, and it'll point them to the greater disease that they have and the greater healing that they need by trusting in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. That's what every New Testament healing was designed to do. When Jesus healed someone and removed sickness, it was always to point to a greater sickness and a greater miracle, which is our salvation. So in light of knowing that, we lift prayers of faith, knowing that it's the Lord who heals, and we yield to his will being done. Now that last line there in verse 15, and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Now, what that doesn't mean, it doesn't mean that every sickness is tied to personal sin in somebody's life. In John chapter 9, there was a blind man. And you remember what the disciples said? They said, Jesus, who, who sinned? Was it his sin or was it his parents' sin? And Jesus said, neither. Job's friends last week made the mistake of thinking that his suffering was tied to some type of personal sin in his life. But in John five fourteen, Jesus warned that there can be a connection. Paul in 1 Corinthians eleven thirty three, referring to those who approached the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner, he says, some of you, that's why you're weak. That's why some of you are ill. He said, that's why some of you have died. So here's what we conclude. All sickness, in a broad sense, is a result of the fall. It's the result that we live in a cursed world, in these bodies that are breaking down. But your individual sin, it may or it may not be tied to 
individual sin. And with all the double-mindedness going on in that church that James has covered up to this point, it makes sense that he's bringing this up right here. And that the elders, when they would go and they would pray for healing, that that time would also involve uh, repentance, a time for confession and repentance. And what he's saying is if, the point right here is if sin was something that was causing that sickness and that illness, he said, confessing that sin, you'll be forgiven of it. So according to that sin, certain, according to those verses, certain sicknesses can be tied to sin. So what, is it, what, what do we do there? We stay clean, we stay confessed, we stay repentant. If you have sinned against another person, Confess that sin to one another. That's what he's talking about right there. He's saying extend forgiveness to people you haven't forgiven. Receive forgiveness from somebody who comes and seeks forgiveness from you. To not extend to people the mercy that God has extended to you is sin. We shouldn't live in that sin. And so as we get right with each other, hey, treat each other like family. Forgive each other like family. Confess sins to each other. Repair relationships like family. As we pray for each other like family, he says the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. What is he talking about right there? He's talking about anybody in Christ. That's a description of anybody in Christ this morning. You have righteous standing before a holy God. You've been declared as righteous. And there, as, as a righteous son or daughter of the king, clothed in the righteousness of God, you've got unlimited access to God. Don't overlook the privilege of that access. Don't overlook the power of your prayers that you have, you have access into the presence of a holy God and you can lift up prayers that make it to His, listen, His caring, gracious ears. We have that access. What would God do in your life? What would God do in the life of your family? What would God do in your marriage? What would God do in the life of your kids? What would God do in our church if we dedicated ourselves like never before to discipline prayer? For some of your marriages, marriage counseling is good. How powerfully would you and your wife getting on your knees every single day for an extended amount of time and praying that the Holy Spirit work a miracle in your marriage? What would it do? Well, the truth of the matter is we can see what the power of prayer does in people's lives because it's right here in front of us in Scripture. And James actually points to one of the greatest examples of what fervent prayer can do. And he points to Elijah. And what does he say there? He says in verse 17, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Think about who he's... He's, he's laying before us in this book these examples that we can be encouraged by and learn from and follow in the footsteps of. But Elijah? Think about who Elijah was. Arguably the, the, the greatest miracle-working prophet in the Old Testament. Just before he prays this prayer, do you know the story? He challenges the prophets of Baal to a showdown on Mount Carmel, and he's on God's side, and it's really just him standing up for God. he got hundreds of these prophets of the false god Baal. Hey, and we're going to build an altar and whoever God shows up and consumes the altar is the real God. So they dance and they cut themselves and they call for their God and there's not a peep out of the heavens from Baal. Nothing. And Elijah steps up. He says, hey, soak the altar with water just to make sure that this isn't just some kind of stunt or some kind of magic trick. And he lifts up one prayer to God and a pillar of fire comes pouring out of the heavens and consumes and licks up every bit of water around that altar. 
and consumes it. That's who we're talking about right here. I don't have time to go over every miracle that we see Elijah perform every part of God's word where it shows the power of God working in his life. In fact, look at the way he, like, think about the way he, his life ends. He doesn't even have to die. Like a chariot comes and just scoops him up in a whirlwind and takes him to heaven. And James is like, that's who we're talking about right here. Um, he's a guy kind of like you guys. Oh, really? Yeah. He's got a nature just like y'all. Yeah. He's Elijah, James. Really? Really? That's the point. Really. Elijah wasn't from anywhere special. He was from an obscure town. We can relate to his obscurity. We can relate to his humanity. There are, we, we see those big moments in his life, but we forget that there's also in between a lot of moments where he's very human. Moments where he's a scaredy cat, emotional, anxious, depressed, disappointed. First Kings chapter, uh, First Kings chapter 19, right after the First Kings chapter 18 showdown where he defeated the prophets of Baal, followed them, killed them, wiped them out. In 1 Kings chapter 19, where do you find him? Under a tree going, God, just kill me. He's running from a woman and he's scared for his life. God's not calling us to be Elijah. Not necessarily giving us the same calling as Elijah, but James says, make no mistake, we are people with feet made of clay, just like Elijah was. More important, we can't just only relate with this, where he's from and his humanity. James is saying you can relate to his God. We know his God and his God knows us. And James is trying to help us to see you have to stop seeing people in Scripture as superstars that somehow got a little, you think maybe they get a little extra dose of something when God was knitting them together that he didn't give me. And he says, that's not true. James wants us to see that Elijah's human just like us. He's a sinner just like us, saved by grace. He's serving the same God that we serve with the same access to God that we have. This is what James wants us to see. Listen to this. He wants us to understand that the God who showed up on Mount Carmel and showed himself powerfully in that moment, the same God who heard his prayer and sent the rain right here, The same God that Elijah served is the same God who's in this room this morning. It's the same God who's taken up residence in your life if you're a follower of Jesus Christ this morning. The personal presence of His Holy Spirit inside of you. He's the same God. The same God Elijah had access to that he's praying to on that day is the same God we have access to who still answers prayers of faith powerfully. As we seek his face with fervent prayer. So as authentic disciples, we pray. We're people of fervent, sincere prayer. I got three minutes and that's all I need. Number two, authentic disciples are pursuers of wandering souls. So we're people of prayer. James wants to leave us with that. And we're people who pursue. And James ends the way that he begins. Very abruptly, a piece of action, and then he leaves. Look at verse 19. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Now, this is not saying that we're all called in a community of faith to be a bunch of sin detectives. Running around, sneaking around, 
trying to look at everything going on in everybody's life. This is a description of someone who has wandered down a harmful path. Maybe theologically, this whole book, he's laid out a, a beautiful portrait, a powerful portrait of what an authentic disciple looks like. And he's saying, do you know somebody who has who's began to go down a harmful path and has abandoned theological truths that are foundational? Do you know someone who's living in an immoral way? You know they know better? You know that, you know that they know how an authentic disciple should live? He's saying when a sheep like that, when one from the fold wanders, he's saying you have a responsibility to pray for them and to pursue them. Did you ever get like separated from your parents in like, in like a store or something when you were really little? In that moment that you realize you're lost? That'll startle a kid, right? Now, my kids, my oldest daughter and my youngest son, they for a while didn't act like they were very scared of getting lost. So when they were like four or five... I played a little trick on them. And this is a little wrong. All right, I feel bad. I'm confessing this morning. I'm confessing this. But they just wouldn't listen. They wouldn't stay close. And so I, what I did is I was in uh, both of them, you know, it, obviously two different years, two different times far apart. Uh, but I, but I, I waited for the right moment where I could see them, but they couldn't see me. And I wanted them to feel that, right? And I did that first experiment on Emma. I feel bad. Or Emma, she... she didn't see me and just starts screaming her head off in the middle of Walmart. Help! And I'm like, open her mouth. I'm carrying her out of Walmart. <laughs> same experience. I, I'm, I, if I'm lying, I'm dying. Listen, same experiment on Max. I watch him walking around the corner. He looks around and doesn't find me. He goes like this. Four years old, walking through Walmart. I'm walking behind him. He doesn't see me, but I see him. He's in my, under my protection. Has no idea where I'm at. He's talking to people checking out toys, completely unafraid, right? Normally, and I remember when I was little, I would go into department stores and I, and I loved like, especially when I was five, six years old, I liked the, you know, in those like Dillard's or things you run through, the, I'd run through the clothes and, and, you know, I'd run down the, the, the different rows of clothes and I'd like tag them like I'm in like wrestling. I'd imagine I'm walking, running down an aisle and wrestling. Now that's really weird. I was a weird kid. All right. So, and I, I like the circle racks, right? You could jump in the middle and hide. And I remember every once in a while, and I vividly remember this happening, I poked my head out and didn't see my mom. And it's that feeling of feeling lost, right? In a few minutes, feels like an eternity, and you feel lost, and you're scared, and you're trying to find help. And then all of a sudden, I felt my mom's arm, grab my arm. And now that I'm older, I realize that she was more worried in that moment than I was. No good parent in that moment just kind of shrugs that off. Where's John, five-year-old Jonathan? Oh, well, let's go to the food court. Maybe he'll catch up with us. No, you panic. You freak out. I mean, good grief. Some of you, you lose your pet. You're calling in search parties and helicopters and search planes. And what James says is, you know a sister or a brother who's drifted away. Your job is not to gossip about them. Often we do. Your job is not to slander them. Often we do. It's to pray and to pursue. Church, we are a sanctified search party. It may mean you'd have to have some awkward conversations with somebody, but because you love them and in hopes of seeing restoration and repentance happen in their life, you approach them with care and humility of Galatians 6, 1, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness and keep watch over yourself, lest you too be tempted. We go after wandering souls. And in verse 20, it reminds us that when we go after them and they come back to the fold, that was a complete work of God. 
And what a privilege it is that he allows us to be in the process of him bringing people back to experience his mercy that never runs out. Aren't you thankful that Jesus restores us? Aren't you thankful that Jesus restores us when we drift? Aren't you thankful not just for second chances, but 30 second chances and 190 second chances? And God often pursues us and brings us back into the fold to begin again through someone he uses to come and to pursue us, a wandering sheep. This is one of the many reasons why we have a high view of church here. This is why we encourage you to join, to make a commitment. You know why? Because we're prone to wander. This is why many of you who are listening online, you need to come back. Because nothing can replace you being in a face-to-face, next to people in worship, in a small group, experiencing the accountability and the prayers and the fellowship and the unity that you'll experience right here on campus. Here, James, the little brother of Jesus. This is the only letter that we have from him. What is on his mind? What is on his heart at the end of this book? Souls. What's breaking his heart are souls that are wandering. What's breaking his heart are people who claim to be authentic disciples who aren't living lives that line up with that. You know, his heart reminds us of someone that person is his older brother, Jesus. Aren't you glad that Jesus, the good shepherd, that when you were running in this world, not to him, but from him, maybe in rebellion, maybe in religion, which is also rebellion, that he came and sought you out, a wandering sheep, and brought you into the fold, found you and brought you into his family, turned you in to a living saint of God, when you were nothing but a dead sinner, helpless and hopeless in your sin. That Jesus came seeking and saving that which was lost. And he completed the work to do that. He entered to Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, and we'll celebrate that next week. On Good Friday, he laid down his life for his sheep. He was raised from the dead. We'll celebrate that two weeks from today. And now by faith, we can enter in and have access to the Father. The Father who loves us, who will never stop pursuing us, who we can pray to, prayers of faith. Our prayers can affect the outcome of situations. What a privilege it is to be part of God's family. What a privilege it is to carry all things to Him in prayer. What a privilege it is to pursue people so that they can be restored. And we do all of this church in light of the truth that one day Jesus is coming back and He's not going to enter in as a Galilean carpenter from an obscure town on a donkey. He's going to enter in Revelation 19 on a war horse as our our commander and king of the universe, our savior who loves us, who will come and set up a new heaven and a new earth where we will exist in shalom, in perfect peace and in perfect joy. And we don't know when that is. To be quite honest with you, sometimes I wonder if we don't celebrate the second coming of Christ more as an escape hatch. And we forget as wonderful as that is. If Jesus comes back today, great. If he doesn't come back today, great. Because it gives us opportunity to go and pursue more wandering souls who can be saved. Second coming of Christ is great news for us. Not great news for our neighbors. 
who don't know Jesus. Not great news for our mom who don't know Jesus. Not great news for our dad who don't know Jesus. Not great news for our kids who don't know Jesus. So if the Lord tarries today, let's use this as an opportunity to pursue wandering souls for Him. James has laid out a portrait of discipleship between here and that moment that will be a wonderful moment when Jesus comes again. May He, by His grace, His power in our lives, help us to live up to what He's laid out. Let's pray. If you're here this morning and you don't know Christ as your Lord and Savior, I would love to talk with you even during this next song that we're about to sing. Be down front, ready to receive you. If you need prayer this morning, are you suffering? Are you sick? Do you need prayer? We'd love to pray for you. The altar will be open. You can sit at your chair. You can stand. But pray. If if you're suffering, pray. Consider that God may have you walking through that suffering the purpose of conforming you more to the image of Jesus. Acknowledge that. And also pray prayers of faith that God will remove it. So you'll do His will. How do you need to respond this morning? Do you need to be baptized? Do you need to join our church? I'll be down front ready to receive you. You respond to the way that God's leading you to respond.